I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jonathan. And we are the Evangelicals. We're here today with one of our theological superheroes, an idol. This is a Reverend, Dr. Reverend Scott Daniels. He's the senior pastor of the College Church of the Nazarene in Nampa, Idaho, and he's over on the Eastern Time Zone this weekend, and we invited him to come and speak with us, and he was very gracious. Uh, his rider was very expensive, but with extensive fun- fundraising... <laughs> We've been able to make this work. So, Scott, thanks for being with us. Uh, thanks for all those who who donated to the GoFundMe page. <laughs> <laughs> We're really excited. And uh, maybe just start off giving us a little bio of yourself, what you do, maybe what you've been a part of, and we'll just kind of go from there. Yeah, so I... I was raised um, by a tribe of Levites. Uh, Everybody in my family are ministers, Uh, both my grandfathers, all my aunts and uncles, my mom and dad. Uh, There are nine of us in my generation, the third generation, seven of the nine of us are ordained. Uh, We joke that we have no other marketable skills. Um, My wife and I have four kids, and my first two, at least, have decided they want to stay in the family business, too. Uh, Hopefully one of the others will, will... We'll do a real job, um, but anyway. Oh, stop it. No. That's awesome, man. Yeah, so it's really great. Um, but yeah, so I feel like a little bit like Samuel. I got left at church. It's always been my home. Uh, and then I went off to school uh, with a call to ministry, went to the school that I teach at now and pastor the church across the street. I went to Northwest Nazarene, now it's university, and uh, went into youth ministry but I, I knew I had a call to preach. And so actually my dad, who pastored in Seattle, Washington, he needed a youth minister when I graduated. So he said, why don't you come home? And I said, okay, I'll do that if I can start seminary. And Fuller Theological Seminary had an extension program in those days in Seattle. And I was the last class there where you had to do at least a year on campus in Pasadena. And so I got almost all of my MDiv done, met my wife in Seattle. We moved to Pasadena and I had a friend on my way to, to Pasadena who said to me, you know, you're going to graduate in a year. You'll be 25 or 26 and you look 13. Um, you like school. Why don't you think about doing a doctorate in something? Which is a terrible reason to think about that. But, uh, but I had it in my mind. And my first, uh, one of my first classes was in theological ethics with a guy named Richard Mao who ended up a year later being the president of Fuller. And uh he kind of took me under his wing, and I decided to do a PhD with him in theology and ethics, which uh, if you would have told me that when I was a, even a college student, I would have laughed. But um, it was a good discipline for me because I, I love philosophy, I love theology, but ethics is also practical enough that I could do some what felt like kind of real-world thinking. Um, but even then, I didn't think I would go into teaching, uh, but I ended up getting a chance to teach a little bit at Azusa Pacific and while I was finishing up. And the fun thing about teaching, you know, when you pastor, people can be in your congregation 30 years and and never grow, and there's nothing you can do to them. Uh, judgment is coming, but you can't do anything <laughs> yourself. The nice thing about teaching is people, if they don't listen, you get to flunk them and they come back again. Um, so anyway, I, I just ended up loving it. Uh, and after a a couple of years teaching there, got a chance to teach at Southern Nazarene University, was there almost seven years and, and was asked to pastor a really good church in Richardson, Texas, just outside of Dallas, was there four years, 
got a call to go to Pasadena first, where I'd been on staff while I was in seminary. It's the second oldest church in this denomination. Um, That's the Church of the Nazarene. In the Church of Nazarene, sorry, thanks. And um, so went there and was there nine years. And my last five was was the dean of the School of Theology at Azusa Pacific at the same time, um, which was really fun. My friends kind of called it my suicide mission. It was a lot of work. Um, And so uh, four years ago, when I got the chance to go back to my alma mater, pastor a really good church, but also teach, I teach five classes a year. And and so to get to do both things. So that's a long way around to say my 25, almost 30 years of ministry have been really in both worlds. Kind of half of it's been academic, half of it's been in pastoral ministry, and now most of it in senior pastoral ministry, preaching preaching ministry. So we, on our podcast, we often show our cards or our colors as Nazarenes and Nazarene pastors, but I want you it's to It's a answer. bad Nazarene metaphor, by the way, to say you're going to no, no, show, <laughs> show your cards, but yeah, go ahead. No, that's right. We just were allowed to start playing cards <laughs> right. when I was a kid well, in the Church of the Nazarene. Yeah, so, so you're showing your, yeah, your green whip cards. <laughs> yes, I'm going to lay my yeah, whip cards on Yeah, very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but why do you love the Church of the Nazarene, and why do you continue to be committed to it and a part of it and a leader within the denomination? Yeah, in some ways I didn't have choice. I I joke that they birthed me, raised me, messed me up, and are stuck with me. But um, but if I even had had a choice, I may have even chose us. Um, in the sense that I do think there is there is something to the theology of holiness that recognizes that that when the scripture thinks about salvation, it is not just thinking about getting to go to heaven when we die. That there's something deeper, richer, bigger, this worldly, bodily, that holiness captures. Now, I'll be the first to admit we haven't always done that well and probably should learn some things from some of our other brothers and sisters that have done pieces of that better. Um, but I think I would still be captured by the imagination of the holiness tradition that believes that God wants to transform us and not just get us out of here. Um, and so I, I do love that part of us. Um, and there's a, there's a warm-heartedness uh, to the Wesleyan tradition uh, that the Nazarene Church is a part of. You know, John Wesley's conversion, to, you know, his heart was strangely warmed. Um, there is a kind of warm-heartedness about the Church of the Nazarene and, and other evangelical groups that, yeah. that have been shaped by... Uh, by what it means to have a very vital personal relationship with Jesus. Uh, as I've gotten older, I've I've realized uh, we need to reclaim some ecclesiology. Uh, you know, so the, I mean, there's weaknesses that I've sure, come to discover. Like sure. uh, God is always saving a people and not just persons. And sometimes not we just did. warming my heart. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but warming our hearts together. Um, but no, I, I I love us, and at this point. I, I do. Um, I've now become a person who, in my ecclesiology, even if I don't think we're a perfect denomination, and there isn't one, um, I do like being part of a people who are accountable. So I'll just tell you one quick funny story. So a couple of years ago, those of you who don't know the Nazarene Church, we meet every four years um, in a general assembly. We make the, we fight for a week together, make decisions, <laughs> vote on leadership and vote on things. Um, 
And then the last one, uh, six years ago, we'd had a conversation about sexuality and, and we had decided that maybe what we needed to do was just take a four-year run at it, put a committee together and kind of come up with a whole new statement, uh, which which I got the privilege of chairing that committee. And, and so we came up with a statement two years ago. It, it passed really well. It was, it was turned out to be a very unifying thing. And that was good. Um, but it was funny. I have a friend in, I, so I live just outside of Boise, Idaho, and I have a friend who's not a Nazarene and is part of a big independent church. But his kids went to the Nazarene University that I teach at, and he's obsessed with us. But he's not one of us. But he somehow he'd come across the statement before General Assembly, somewhere he'd found it online. And so he called me and said, hey, can we talk about this? And so we went to breakfast, and so I meet him at breakfast, and his first line, he was trying to be a smart aleck, but he said, hey, the first thing I want to know is, is, does it bother you that you belong to a church that votes on its theology? And, you know, I very seldom do I have the right answer at the right time, but it was just one of those moments where I had the right response. I said, no, not at all. I said, does it bother you that you belong to a church that just got to make theirs up? And he, <laughs> said, he said, well, I've never really thought about that before. And I said, well, you should think about that. I said, I, I've spent four years working on a theology of sexuality, but I still can't say it. I have to fly now to Indianapolis and fight for a week with 3,000 people to see if I'm allowed to say what I want to say here. Yeah. And so I love the accountability. I love that when I got ordained, um, the church had spent several years. I just didn't get to be ordained because I felt I felt like I was called. I you had to have people say, we agree with you. And, and so much so, we'll now invest in you, we'll encourage you, but we'll also hold you accountable. And so I'm, I know that God's doing some really great things through some indep- through a lot of independent churches these days, but I'm glad to not be one of them. <laughs> um, I, I'm glad to be part of a group that, that doesn't embody the whole universal church, but at least tries to do it in such a way that we're, we're trying to be the church together. You, um, you mentioned that you talked about you love the fact that we believe that God is doing something now, that it's not just for something later. And in the service that you just spoke at, you talked about how you've seen that outbreaking pouring of the Spirit around the world. And so maybe just share some some stories or one or two that that this is this is what I mean when I'm talking about this is not just for later, but this are things that are happening now in the flesh and blood. The world's becoming. You know, in, in Revelation, I'm making all things new, um, instances maybe that you've seen that happen and uh, with our with our denomination, potentially. Yeah, so I get a chance to travel a fair amount, and it is beautiful to see, I mean, the church exploding in Africa. The church, the church is really growing fast in South America. In fact, our biggest problem in Central and South America is we have too many people called to ministry, and we're not doing a good job of training them. Oh, man. Like, we don't have... Yeah, like that's our biggest problem. Is is um, you know here seminaries are fighting to stay open, but you know they're de- they're desperate for education um, and and for preparation, and that's really beautiful. But I'll give you just two quick examples. I got it's a long story, but I got invited to be a guest of the official church in China, and and I know that a lot of Christians, evangelical Christians, rightly support the house church movement in China, but I think sometimes we do that and fail to notice that God's doing something really incredible in the, in the three, in the, um, yeah, in the church, the official church in China. Um, so I was invited to come to Shanghai with four other pastors and we were in this, we toured churches 
in Shanghai that would put any megachurch in America to shame. I mean, they're they're just amazing. And people, just the Spirit of God being poured out, um, I shared in the service tonight, getting to meet with people who had kept faith alive through the Cultural Revolution, could not openly worship and pray, but basically kept the church alive in around kitchen tables until the church was reopened again. Um, and it's, you know, it's amazing to see. Um, I, I don't think, I don't know if it'll happen in my lifetime, but I do think at some point China will join, will, will become one of, the, one of, if not the leading places of Christianity in the world in the ways that we're seeing the Southern Hemisphere do that now. Um, wow. Yeah. The, I don't know... Um, so I was, I didn't, again, I don't know how I got invited, but I, uh, a few years ago, uh, the Lausanne conference. So Billy Graham has had a couple of global evangelical con- or global evangelism conferences historically. Um, I think it was probably seven years ago now. Uh, they had one in Cape Town, South Africa, and, and it was very global. Only 400 Americans were there, uh, but there were just people from all over the world. But it was funny, I, they put us in small groups. And so they would, we would have a session on a topic, and then we would turn in our small group, and we would we would talk about it. And everybody in the small group, each one was from a different place on the globe in a different nation. So we, <laughs> the funniest one, we had this one on breaking down barriers. And uh, so thankfully, I was the last one to talk. But the the woman next to me was a young attorney in India who was spending her life breaking down barriers between the caste system and the name of Jesus. The next person was from. Uh, the Middle East, and was telling stories about breaking down the barriers between Christians and Muslims where he lives and overcoming sources of violence. But like every person around the table was just this unbelievable story of God's redemptive work. Um, You know, folks out of the genocides in uh, Rwanda, I had a Rwandan leader at my table talking about God's healing there. Just going around the table, but the funny thing was, I was last. Thankfully, we're almost out of time. They said, Scott, you know, how have you broken down barriers? And I, the only thing I could think of, I said, well, God has really helped me to tear down the barriers between people who like contemporary and traditional worship. Right? <laughs> like, I just felt like, what an idiot, right? Like, um, But what God is doing around, you know, and, and I talked about some other more serious things. But, um, but I, I just mean, not even just the level of evangelism that's going on around the world, but the kind of healing that God is bringing to cultures and to people and um, it's it's powerful. I mean, it, it's powerful. And so I know that Europe and North America, um, this is probably not the high time for us, certainly not, in terms of church attendance. And, and we talk, you know, I've wrote a, written a book about exile, kind of explaining our own situation. Uh, but I think if we pick up our eyes and look around the world, there's much to, to be prisoners of hope about uh, with regards to the gospel. So every denomination or movement within Christendom has uh, kind of its uh, thing, whether it be a doctrine or an ethic or uh, things that other people talk about when they talk about that denomination. And for the Church of the Nazarene, our uh, kind of cornerstone doctrine that sets us apart from other denominations is this doctrine historically um, called the doctrine of entire sanctification. Essentially what the doctrine of entire sanctification says is that God's spirit... um, moves in individuals to sanctify them entirely. And this has been, this has been uh, for people outside of the Church of the Nazarene, kind of a laughingstock. I remember going to seminary with other people 
uh, from reformed movements or um, uh, movements that didn't have as optimistic of eschatology as the Church of the Nazarene does. And I remember just getting made fun of or people, you know, not taking me seriously because I'm, you know, a part of the Church of the Nazarene, this group of people who believes in this real radical transformation that happens um, because of the Spirit of God moving in their life. And I'm curious, in your, uh, you're one of our leading theologians in the denomination. Uh, you're somebody who has, but you're somebody who has crafted um, much of our much of our language. What do you, what do you think when you read the historical words of the Church of the Nazarene? How we've talked about entire sanctification and used that word entire in in total as it pertains to the work of the Spirit in one's life. Well, it's a great question. I I think. One of the things we need to remember, because we don't always remember where we came from, and so we forget how we got here. Um, But the Church of Nazarene came about during the late 19th, early 20th centuries with a number of other movements where there was a lot of conversation and dialogue about, um, no, wait a minute, there's a third person of the Trinity, right? Like the Holy Spirit does something here too, right? Um, and so you had all of these revivals coming out of conversations about what is the work of the Holy Spirit. And so there may be some people who are listening to this who are part of the the Pentecostal tradition or or other traditions that emerged out of those same revivals. And in yeah. many ways, the Church of Nazarene, we had a little breakup uh, with them, um, but we are cousins. I mean, there's a lot of commonality between ourselves and the Assembly of God and the Church of God in all of its various forms, um, other other Pentecostal movements, where we disagreed and the breakup had to do not with the that we needed this Holy Spirit to work in us. The fight was over what is the sign that the Holy Spirit is working in, in us. And for many of the Pentecostal traditions, not all, but for many, the sign that one had been filled with the Holy Spirit was that you had some one of the evidences or signs, like especially speaking in tongues. That, yeah, kind that, of a radical manifestation. Right, so you come out of the Azusa Street Revival, and and so speaking in tongues became the sign. The Church of Nazarene probably overreacted to some of that. Mm. Um, but the reaction was this, that uh, I'll call us 1 Corinthians 13 Christians. So Paul, uh, you know, the, the text that gets read at every wedding um, as though it's about marital love, which it... Love's good there too, but um, but First Corinthians thirteen is Paul saying to a church that is fighting with each other about which which sign or evidence of the Spirit is better than others. Paul says, "Well, listen, if you speak with the tongues of angels, that's great, but you don't have love. You you're a clanging gong or a clashing cymbal, or if you even are given the gift of charity or works, and you you give your body to be burned like as a martyr, but you don't have love, like that doesn't matter." So. So we're kind of 1 Corinthians 13 Christians who say, the sign that you're filled with the Spirit is that you have a heart renewed in love. Like, that's it. All these other things may be part of it, and that's where I think we may have overreacted a little bit to push back against that. But where we were right, I think, is that love has to be the defining factor of, of the sanctified life. And that the Holy Spirit is not something we do solely on our own. It is not something we, that God does without us. But it is something that we participate in the Spirit's work as as God forms us, transforms us to be the image of God we were created to be, which is primarily a reflection of God's love, especially as we see it in Jesus. Um, so that part of it's all really good. Um, the you know the other words that you threw in there were things like entirely and 
the the question then that arose was um like is there a time you know what is there a time that you're saved and then another time when you're sanctified uh if you're entirely sanctified does that mean that you never sin again and if you do sin again does that mean you weren't sanctified um there you know the church of the nazarene has had essentially 100 years of debates and in in some ways 50 years of living with two schools of thinking on this and mm. I'll show I'll show my rook cards um <laughs> so do you play any other face cards oh yeah all the time okay yeah, yeah 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 I just yes yeah um yeah there are some still that don't no but... I know I will so I'll lay down my clubs and hearts um <laughs> I think the I think the idea that it has to be a secondness is a historical accident um, and and problematic at some level. Um, and, and, and what I mean by historical accident is this. If we go back to John Wesley, in Wesley's day, everybody thought they were Christian because they were English. Like everybody's baptized into the Anglican church as a baby. If you'd asked anybody on the street, are you, uh, hello, mate, are oh, you Christian? And he'd say, oh, yeah, oh, oh, oh radio. You know, like everybody is Christian. But Wesley looked around and thought, but none of these people are living Christianly. Like there's nothing vital in their faith. And he even thought that about himself, right? There's nothing vital of that faith. And so what Wesley experienced as the infilling of the Holy Spirit, what what he invited others into, I would just call following Jesus. <laughs> like, like it's just discipleship. It's just yeah. it's just following him, right? And so and I think that was largely true even of the first gener- first generations of of the church here, the church of Nazarene here. Most of the people, I mean, we even use the language of revival often, which assumes that there's something in somebody that just needs to be revived. Um, and so we use the language of revival to say, you may be living this marginal faith that has believe that Jesus is the Son of God, or and you you believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins. You believe that. That's great. So you're, you've been justified or saved um, in that sense. But there's nothing vital. In, I mean, there's nothing that looks like life on the vine, growing, bearing fruit, discipleship, yeah. all the things that the Scripture leads us into. So it shouldn't surprise us that a bunch of people then had secondness. But I would argue, I, I told a story a little bit about my wife tonight, who became a Christian at 22, and she was engaged to this guy. We don't talk about him anymore, but um, that's a joke. You should laugh. At. Um, yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah. All right. Yeah, but I was kind of like nervous over here. I was like, oh, he's he's talking. About no, you are showing be- your cards. But when she became a Christian, I would argue she, like, I would never have said to her, "That's great, you become a Christian. Now wait a little while, and we'll get you sanctified." Like she knew, she had something had happened in her. And she didn't have all the theological language of being filled with the Spirit, but she knew Christ had entered her life, and it ended up pretty quickly, like leading to the breakup of this relationship. Yeah, it ended up t- turning the whole direction of her life. And so I think I think we have to be careful about the. I often say we need to emphasize the product of holiness and hold the process loosely. Um, the product, the product is there, and the product is there scripturally. But the process is muddy, and and to make a hard and fast rule out of the process is really problematic. 
Um, the other part about entire is, is I, I also think it's a bit of a, a mistake to think we've often confused freedom from sin with sinlessness and, and they're not the same thing. Uh, we've sometimes preached sanctification as sinlessness and, and that's not helpful. Um, and, and, you know, one of our, our real theologians, thanks for calling me that, but one of our real theologians, Mildred Bangs Winecoop in her book on, on love said, he has a great chapter called the credibility gap. And when we, when we talk about it as sinlessness, we have this huge credibility gap because you don't have to watch any of us very long to realize we're not sinless. But freedom from sin says, but sin does not have to have the last word. And that's where I think some of our our Reformed brothers and sisters, who I think their theolo- theological tradition has changed a lot too. In fact, some some of my some of the best holiness preachers these days are Reformed people. Yeah, um, I, I had a chance to um, I, I had a chance to become friends with Dallas Willard before he died, which was really sweet. But Dallas is a Reformed guy, but I don't know of anybody who articulated holiness better than Dallas Willard or embodied it, frankly. Um, but he came at it from a different trajectory and a different historical uh, tradition. But but the guy talked to <laughs> the guy, the guy knew holiness, lived holiness, preached holiness. Um, but but freedom from sin says I don't have to be a slave to sin. And so there, I often say it's like marriage. Debbie and I just celebrated our 29th anniversary a week ago. When we left the sanctuary, February 23rd, 1990, I could not have been more married than I was that night, but 29 years later, I am so much more married. Mm. And I think my wife hopes yeah. over the next 29 years, I'll be even more married than I am now. That all that did was begin a reality that then we begin to live into. Some of our theology, and I won't go too long, but some of our theology is rooted in Eastern Orthodox theology, actually, and the theology of theosis from Eastern Orthodoxy. And the Orthodox believe that when... When you die, the Western church tends to think when you die, you get fast forwarded to completion. The Orthodox think God's love is so eternal. God's, the, the knowledge and reality of God is so vast. We will spend eternity growing into the knowledge and love of God. Because if you're not growing, you're dead. Like for the Eastern Orthodox, the, the opposite of not growing is death. And sometimes I think we've preached death. Like like you went to an altar and you di- and you died to self. But he also, in a sense, died. There was no more work to be done. No, you just entered into a relationship that now is going to encapsulate every single aspect of your life. And you're going to spend the rest of your life, and I, I'm going to go with the Orthodox on this, even the eternity, growing into the reality of that, of that relationship you've now entered into. It's beautiful. And I think that there's a part of our history that this holiness talk became very legalistic. And it's breadth, and so we... I never experienced that. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, grew like, you speak of. I grew up in Northwest Georgia, a small church, and so it, ladies dressed a certain way. My grandparents didn't have a TV in their home, didn't go to movies, you know, don't smoke, drink, or chew, or date girls that do. But I think that it became this understanding, once again, when you talked about what does holiness look like, or how do we know that we are holy... And I think, unfortunately, I don't know if it was second generation or third generation, we turned it into this, you dress like this. And once again, I'm not saying that there isn't some f- sort of modesty that needs to be adhered to, but it became more about dresses and hair in a bun. And 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 so it became this, that's what it looks like to be a holy person. 
And it got away from, I feel like, this understanding of love of God and love of others completely. Um, and, and so I think that we'd like to talk a little bit about, you know, we're, we're kind of having conversations in our tribe about certain areas of, of things that, that have been taboo in the past and there seem to be coming back around again and again and again, alcohol being one of them. But can you talk maybe a little bit about how do we, how do we not live or how do we do our best to make sure that this legalistic mindset, ideology, we don't allow it to creep in because it's attractive. If you just tell me what I have to do and I can just dress this way, go to this, not do this. I have a lady that, that, that tells me that all the time, just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. And it's like, well, you got to love God and love others and let him lead you and what that looks like. So I feel like part of our history, we have that, unfortunately. And and how do we how do we guard against that? How do we not let those things become the identifier, but rather the love that Paul mm-hmm. talks about? So I've been I'm preaching through Luke right now, and uh, the last several weeks we've been Luke puts together a whole series of controversy stories, beginning with. Uh, the Pharisee, you know, Jesus has a movement started. People are showing up, and it begins with a friend who friends who lower their paralyzed friend through the roof, and Jesus pronounces forgiveness of sins, which is problematic. And then he calls Levi, and then goes to dinner with all of his friends. And so he eats with tax collectors and sinners, which the Pharisees are frustrated by. And then the big one this last week was the he violates the Sabbath in 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 their opinion. And as I've been preaching these texts, I've been trying to have empathy for the Pharisees and trying to help my congregation not think of them. I joke that when if you're raised in the church, every time you hear, see the Pharisees, you hear the dun 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 dun. You hear the Darth Vader. It's so true. You hear the Darth Vader theme, right? But I was I was trying to say, you know, the problem like with Sabbath is is not just that the Pharisees are legalistic, but the Sabbath is so important. The Sabbath is the way Jews identified themselves. And largely, and I kind of have, I will say, I have a little bit of Orthodox Jew envy still about this, that I love Jewish communities. I used to see them in Beverly Hills walking to synagogue, um, or for a while we lived in a, we were renting a house and there was a house behind it and there were Orthodox Jews in the house behind us. And I remember on Fridays, we had to make sure that we pulled our cars all the way in so they could get their cars and we shared a driveway. So they had to get in the garage because uh, one Friday we forgot and they, they, their cars were blocking us and we got to walk for 24 hours with them because we couldn't get our cars out. Um, the problem is when Jesus claims kingship over it, so he tells a story about David that sort of associates himself as Lord over the Sabbath. He has he has power over it, or he sort of heals on the Sabbath, although he doesn't touch the guy. He doesn't violate Sabbath, but goodness breaks out on the Sabbath. But I, I basically said the problem here is not this, and Jesus never makes fun of the Sabbath. But the problem is what, what John Ortberg would call a shadow mission. The Pharisees miss the mission and they don't go 180 degrees opposite of it. They go about six degrees off of it. And the Sabbath becomes the marker, not the new creation Jesus is bringing. So they, they, you know, they fast and fail to feast with him. And, and in their drawing away from him, they never get invited to Levi's table like Jesus does. Um, and so I would say for us, I don't, like, I think we should have healthy conversations about some of those ethical things but not as the thing, as byproducts of the thing. 
And so again, back to my wife's, my wife, my wife grew up in a, with a single mom in a very non-Christian household, went to church once in her life. She would tell you, uh, we went, she were, she's three days older than me. She went to a private school in Oregon and she would tell you she remembers very little about it because she was drunk almost the entire four years that she was there. When she came to Christ, she left a lot of things behind. And one of the big things she left behind was alcohol. Now, but here's what I love about her. She associates that with the, she associates that as part of the new creation Christ did in her, but she doesn't associate it as the new creation that Christ did in her. Okay. Right? Yeah. Right. So it's not the identifying marker of her life. The the love of God that leads to the transformation of her life is the thing that leads to it. Um and so for her, she, you know, we've we've had some of our best friends in seminary were Presbyterians. And they had none of our alcohol history to it. And my wife, my wife never said any derogatory thing about their faith, about anything related to that. Because it it what for her, it was part of the it was part of what the new creation meant. It left leaving this old kind of brokenness behind. But it's not the identifying marker for her, right? And um I do think some of some of ours, our second generation was our first generation of the Church of Nazarene was urban very interested in transforming people's lives. It's part of the reason alcohol was such an important thing. So many of our early members were alcoholics, and it was a sign that the new creation had broken into their lives. Second generation was rural, and it's easy to not go to movies when there's no theater in your town anyway. Um, but <laughs> but they, were, they were conservative, and I do think there were places and times in our lives where we, where we made sab- a thing like the Pharisees made Sabbath the thing. We made some other things the things and not the byproducts of the thing. And we made the negatives the thing, and we failed to see the... We failed to recognize holiness leads us to all sorts of positives, though, too. Justice, hospitality, charity. Um, I I mean, there's just all of these things that holiness invites us also to do, not just avoid, but, but a long list of things that holiness invites us to also participate in. I will say, though, today, though, I'm... So now I'm going to sound like the old Muppet in the theater, which I've increasingly become. I'm worried that the generation or two that are following me now, though, we've talked about this legalism so long and we're so tired of kind of, and I don't know very many people younger than me that were actually raised legalistically. You guys may be the exceptions, but, but, but now I feel like there's no talk of what is the byproduct of holiness. And when, and when we, we're good at talking about holiness as love, but we don't actually mean love. We just mean a lack of conflict, or we mean sentimentality. Love isn't... Um, so my love for my children is not letting them do whatever they want to. That's not love. That's just me not wanting to parent. Um, that's just me unwilling to to have hard conversations about what is best for them in their life. Um, I feel like not all... But I feel like some in this generation have resisted legalism only to fall back into some of the very same traps that the first generation was trying to get out of. And what what we call love is actually just a kind of libertarian secularism that just doesn't want to have to have hard conversations about anything and is just sentimentality, not love. So kind of getting back to that whole legalistic thing, I think something that that maybe we struggle with, and I don't know, you could speak to it 
way better than me is I feel like we have a terrible definition of even what a sin is. And so therefore we, we claim one thing is, one thing isn't, and, and it gets us into a trap. And, and maybe our, our understanding of holiness is the less because we really don't even know how to define what a sin is. Yeah. So <laughs> yes, it's a mess. Um, so I know that in the Church of Nazarene, we love to quote John Wesley's yes. sins, sins definition, willful trans- a willful transgression against the known law of God, which is a way Wesley defines sin, but he defined it a bunch of other ways too. When you define sin as a willful transgression against the known law of God, then you can say, you can excuse a whole bunch of things. If I didn't know, right, it wasn't sin. Yeah, so the two things that really get messed up, sins of omission— so, yep. so you you never have sense of omission to confess. And the big thing to me is it totally ignores, it's why we haven't, <laughs> I'm going to make a bold statement, it's why we haven't cared about racism. Yes. Um, it's because we, we failed to, or because if I'm not a racist individually, then systems must not be. Um, it fails to recognize the way systems become sinful, structures become sinful. Um, sinful is totally just down to will and the individual um, and and I also think we've tended to think of sin as a kind of substance. So I'm I'm not a fan of metaphors that I heard a lot growing up. Sin's like a cancer that needs to be, um, you know, kind of surgically taken out of the spirit. Um, I think what we are trying to say there is that one can have a heart that is bent towards doing the things that are that God wants us to do. That that heart bent towards away from self and towards God and others. Um, and I, I think that's, but that's very relational. It's not substantival, it's relational. And that's why I prefer a, a, a metaphor like marriage to describe what holiness is, because it's learning to live in right relationship to God. And it's not getting rid of something that's in us. It's It's learning new habits of relatedness away from self and towards God and towards others. Um, I also think it's not just our sin that's a problem, and this opens a whole other can of worms, but our whole understanding of salvation that is, and our eschatology, which is a fancy theological word that means how do we think this story ends, um, our eschatology has been <laughs> shaped by reading Left Behind one too many times, which is one too many times of reading it. Um, <laughs> it, is, it is this theology that says... God's whole hope for the world is just to kind of redeem us. We can live little isolated lives separate from the world. And then eventually he's going to suck us out and blow the thing up, right? And it's such a bad reading of the scripture. It just eliminates the goodness of creation in the beginning and the new Jerusalem coming down and a whole new heaven and new earth, renewed kings of earth bringing their treasures to the Lord in the new city. Like all of it just ignores the hopefulness of the redemption of create of all of creation, um, and it ignores. I mean, it makes us kind of virtual Gnostics. We 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 can't really be holy in the body. We we just have to get out of here to do that. Um, and so I, we just we need. And I think we're get we are getting there. We have a much more robust sense of hope of what God is going to do how that includes the creation, how that includes being holy while we're in the body. And and I, I want to be careful how we say that. We will always be in the body. So it's not like while we're in the body now and we'll be out of it later. No, holiness has to be in, in bodies because we'll always be in bodies. That's what the resurrection implies, that we'll have bodies. 
Um, so holiness has to be in community, has to be in relationship, has to be something that gets lived out now, which is the hope of the resurrection, that what was supposed to happen at the end, the resurrection, has broken into the middle. Um, I think that's Paul's theology, is that the new creation is not just something we're waiting for. If anyone is in Christ, new creation has come. New creation is here, and we are foretaste of that, pink, little pink Baskin-Robin spoon foretaste of the ice cream to come, of the new creation that is to come. So as we're moving into the 21st century, uh, there's a lot of talk about Christianity, that Christianity is catching up with the times, which that conversation always bothers me, or that language always bothers me, because it's, you know, it's it's the idea that our um, our cultists, our, our worship is shaped by our culture and not the other way around, you know, that we're not shaping our our culture it seems that it seems like the a measure of holiness is one's ability to change like the things are things are changing the world is changing in some in some senses and we need to be um engaging the world in new ways in radical ways i think i um just just at one of our last denominational gatherings one of our general superintendents said you know um quoting in another thinker that we're at our best when our Theology is conservative and our approach or our practices are liberal. Is that right? Hmm. Um, that was the that was the thinker, whether okay. or not you think that's right. No, that's interesting. The people, all the listeners out there can imply whatever they want by your... Sure. Hmm. 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 <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Um, but where where is... For, for those of us who, who believe that regardless of what's going on in trends of culture, the Spirit of God is still making people holy in the 21st century, what... What are the implications for us uh, in the Church of the Nazarene, maybe that makes us different or unique than other Christian denominations moving forward in um, 21st century secular America? So in the same way that, that I just said, holiness has to be embodied in us as individuals. It has to be embodied culturally. Has to, so to have ecclesiology, we're not just—the Church is not just someplace we go. It's something God is forming us to be. But in the same way, it has each of us has to figure out what holiness looks like in our particular bodies, and and in each of us, the challenges may be different, slightly different. Holiness always gets then embodied in a particular culture, in a particular time, in a particular place, and I think that that's where really hard. So now I'm going to talk like an ethicist. That's where really hard theological ethical work is done, and I don't know. And I think that's always going to be challenged challenging is what does it look like here and what does it look like in this time and what are the you know the the it's not Wesley's quote but he said it so often we usually associate it with him but the um in essentials unity and non-essentials liberty but in all things charity which is a wonderful statement but what's not essential for me may be essential for you and and vice versa um so I go back to Acts 15 Paul has tried to put this gospel into this Gentile context. And these Gentiles are loving each other. They're loving Jews. Like the church is, you know, for Paul, the sign that the new creation is coming is Jews and Gentiles are worshiping together. He can't start a Jewish church and a Gentile church. The sign is they're worshiping together. Yeah. But the problem is Jews don't want to be circumcised because how? And or Gentiles not, don't. Or Gentiles, don't. I'm sorry. Gentiles yeah. don't want to be circumcised. So they get together in Acts 15 to decide, is this an essential? 
which I love. I mean, the literalist there had to be going crazy because if you read Genesis, God doesn't say, well, Abraham, this can be a sign between you and me for a while. I'll let you know. Um, like it's, this will be a sign for all times. Like, you know, somebody got up and read that scripture and said, this says for all times. Um, and Paul's over in the corner going, yeah, I don't know. Um, circumcision, uncircumcision, I don't think it's anything. Like that, I love Luke says, and there was much debate. Oh yeah, no kidding. <laughs> no kidding. There had to be a huge debate. But then they kind of discern the work of the Spirit and say, well, yeah, we're with you, Paul. Um, the Gentiles don't have to get circumcised. Now they do have to care for the poor, which Paul says, well, I was going to do that all along anyway. So it was a, it, it's a very fascinating sort of test case of arguing in this moment what does the gospel, what are the essentials and non-essentials of the gospel look like? And I think we're in that moment again, right? We're, we're in this, we're, we're always in that moment. Um, but we're in this moment of saying and disagreeing over, um, in particular, this, you know, this generation's question has to do with marriage and sexuality and and as we've even seen played out with some of our brothers and sisters these last few weeks, really strong differences of opinion about, about whether that's an essential or non-essential. Um, can one be holy and live some other life other than covenantal heterosexual monogamy or, or celibacy? I mean, is there, is there another way to live faithfully in the body other than those two options? Um, and I, I, I think that's a really important question, and I, I recognize why so much of the church argues this is an essential. No, this isn't essential. This is, this is not a non-essential. Um, but I also see where others in the tradition would say, no, like this is one of those other circumcision moments where what has seemed like an essential in this moment, in this culture context, um, it's not an essential, mm. but that's, I, I, yeah, it's a hard question. I mean, and, but it's typical. I, I don't, I don't want to focus on that question so much as to say, this is not a new moment for the church. Uh, if we step back a few generations, we look back and say, I cannot believe that people went to church and owned slaves. Yeah. Like what, what part, what part of the gospel, what part of, now in Christ Jesus, there's no longer junior Greek slave or female or female. Right. Don't you get? And now we look and say, "Wow!" And I, I wish that we had, I wish we had the ability to step ahead 200 years if the Lord tarries, and look back at this moment with the kind of eyes that we're able to look back on that moment. Yeah. And I, and I'm not sure they're equated, and I, I don't mean that either. I, I think sometimes the the equating of those two kinds of decisions is a false equating. Um, but we are in one of those challenging moments with regards to some of those issues. You know, we have people that listen to this podcast just with a lot of different opinions and different biases that they bring. And just listening to what you're saying, I mean, you're kind of vague in some senses. And some people, I think, I think in some ways you could be heard as somebody who's not committed or uh, I don't I guess I'm just just for sake of clarity, where do you where do you think this is going? Can you give us maybe an eschatological vision of what holiness people in the 21st century ought to be living into? Yeah, so so 
without pontificating really long on this, I, I do think the the fundamental problem with, with something like marriage right now is we don't have a story that informs why we should get married other than desire, which is not the right story That's right. to lead us into that. And so I I still tend to think this is an essential, but but that's because I think a an essential part of our story is that um, we sometimes think uh, a strong church makes strong families, and I want to reverse that. Strong families make a make up a strong church. That we are called to be. I, I wish we could recapture some sense that we don't get married because we've we've fallen in romantic love with another person, but we get married because we feel like God is calling us to, to partner with this person and have children. And if we're led to have children, have children for the sake of the church. Like, and so when I lecture about this with students, students look at me like, you're, you've gone crazy. But, but I say back to them, the reason you think I'm crazy is because you have no story that leads you to decide why you should marry or have children. Right. Right. And so totally other than desire. So, and that's why I say to them, that's why you're all messed up because your parents had you because they thought you'd be fun and you, you haven't been, you've been expensive. Yeah, reality check. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Like you've, you haven't been fun and you haven't loved them. You've been a pain and, and, and they've had to learn to love you anyway, which is the point, right? Yes. Like the, the whole point is our marriages are a reflection of the covenant that Christ has made to his church. Um, they, we may not think of them as a sacrament, but they are sacramental in that they form us to be a different kind of people. But we do all that. It's why we invite the church to come. It's not just because we need new toasters, but because in a sense, we're inviting the church to come and say, we agree. Like we have prayed with you and we agree. You guys should go live together. And and we even think you should be intimate with each other. And if kids come out of that, bring them back and we'll promise to help you raise them and we'll be the church together. But we can't even get people to get married at the church. Thanks, Pinterest. Um, let alone <laughs> think of the church as the reason they're getting married, right? And so so yeah. for me, I tend to be pretty conservative on that issue, but but it's because I think marriage is marriage is an essential outgrowth of the story. Now, I know folks that disagree with me could think about other ways marriage could do that, um, but at least we're getting at the story and getting at why we think it's essential and not just because we've got two or three texts that that say this or that, but we understand how it is an essential um, and how it, it gets lived out. Yes. I think that as we turn on the news, it looks very bleak. As we <laughs> turn on the, if you get on social media, it, the, it doesn't seem that things are heading in the right trajectory. Um, well, what, what excites you about the future? Are we, as holiness people, always say that there's hope. And and unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be a lot of that being spread around these days. So as you look at the near future or even further than that, um, what gets you excited? Like, where do you find your hope? Yeah. Well, I find my hope in Christ. And, um, you know, I tell the story that, um, oh, uh, oh, Cornell West, uh, the African-American scholar I saw yeah. him interviewed years ago. And the interviewer was saying, Dr. West, you know, you've been involved in race relations all these years. How have you stayed optimistic? And he goes, oh, no, no, no. I am not op optimistic or pessimistic. He said, I'm a prisoner of hope, you know. 
And the, I always say the interviewer didn't know he was quoting Zechariah, but I did. And I love that line from Zechariah 9, that we are prisoners of hope. I'm not, you know, I, I, I find myself easily pessimistic these days about the church in North America. And um, I, I do think, I mean, I'm writing books on exile. I think that we're in a period of contraction. My books on exile are to say there is hope in exile, and God would rather send his people into exile and be faithful than to leave them not in exile and be unfaithful. And God does his best work in exile. So I'm optimistic about what God can do in exile. But if the church continues to contract in North America, that may happen. I hope it doesn't. It feels like it's doing that. But then, but if that happens, then we need to recover. There's a whole bunch of remnant narratives in the scripture. I mean, that's what Noah's story is. The Noah story is the whole world abandons. God God recreated out of one faithful family. He can do it again. I mean, that's the whole point of telling your children that story in the first place. Um, it's not just giraffes and elephants. It's about a remnant that God yeah. redeems and saves yeah. in the midst of the floods of chaos. Yes. I think I don't think it'll get down to one family, um, <laughs> but I hope I'm in that group that is attempting to live faithfully, not dependent upon the culture holding us up as a prop, but but living faithfully as a witness, and not angrily, but living lovingly and graciously towards a world um, that God is going to redeem, and we and we are committed to being part of that redemption, and that gives me hope. And I do, I do think there's some beautiful expressions of the church that are being recovered, and um, this is a hard time for in the institution of the church, but the church is still God's is still Christ's bride, um, and He is. He will not give up on it. And so that that gives me hope. The Evangelicals podcast is recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio.